You're listening to Were You Still Talking? They pump out your blood and they pump in a, a new batch of blood and all of it is the blood of children. All the big stars are going to be on TV now. I mean, it's just the way it's going. Your role, I think, will be played by Brad Pitt. What'd you wear? Uh, I wore my loincloth wrapped around my feet. Are you going by John today? And that's absolutely true. You feel it in every cell in your body. Yeah, you can, you can bend the truth and bend the visualizations no matter what your political affiliation. You could have an alpaca. My a, a girlfriend's daughter recently got married and they had llamas or alpacas at the wedding. A recording room. They recorded uh, a couple songs in the kitchen of Rumbo. So, wait, you, you, you microdosed before this, right? What? Hey, welcome back. You are still listening to Were You Still Talking? And this is still Joel Albrecht. And today I'm going to talk about something that's um, very near and dear to me. It's something I'm, uh, I worry about. It's something that's on my mind a lot. It's something that I think should be the number one issue um, in politics and maybe in business as well, probably. Uh, I'm going to talk about global warming. It's... Um, Believe it or not, something I believe in, and, and I know most of the people listening to this probably also believe in it. The fact that um, there's some, the fact that there's some uh, people who don't, or some people who are fighting against the very idea, is kind of nuts to me. But I am really, really happy to have someone in the in the studio who is working on it, who is uh, helps me feel a little more positive about it, just knowing that someone like this exists. So today on the show, we have Dr. James Stalker. He is an American high-tech entrepreneur since 2002. Dr. Stalker is CEO of the Enterprise Universe, which is something I'm going to get into with him. He has a really long resume. He went to a lot of schools. He has a PhD and two master's degrees, from what I understand, and a bachelor's degree. There was at least four degrees that I looked at, master's of bachelor's and mechanical engineering. He's uh, an atmospheric scientist, and he has a, a PhD in atmospheric science. He's started his own company to um, to help uh, people understand global warming, and uh, it's so it's kind of involved, so I don't completely understand it. But I'm going to get into it, and I'm going to find out. Uh, uh, I'm going to ask him a lot of things, like you know, are we going to survive? So, Doctor Stalker, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Joel. It's a uh, it's a pleasure uh, being on, on your show. Yeah, I'm really honored to have you. Um, I really appreciate the work you're doing because, uh, as I said in my intro, I'm very nervous about the state of the globe. We in Oregon had a um, a really good dose of it last year. Oregon and California. California's coming at it again, where we have a fire seasons that are longer and longer. Last year, I think it was our worst fire season on record, if not the worst, the second worst. Um, in um, the town that I'm in, we were engulfed in smoke for days. So, yeah, it affects everyone. And um, I'm kind of wondering, before we get into what your company does, how did you, like at what point did you decide that that was going to be your life's work? Because it is your life's work and, you know, you're working very hard uh, on glow on climate research was did that happen before you went to school were you already on that path or did that happen like along the road when did well great question uh, joel not at all i i wasn't thinking about the climate i wasn't even thinking about the weather i was an engineering student mm -hmm. uh, focused on uh, computational fluid dynamics and i uh, did really well for my master's degree uh, at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And my advisor at the time, uh, you know, uh, after my defense of my master's uh, program, uh, we were talking over lunch and he said, I, I asked him, you know, I'd like to continue to get my PhD mm -hmm. in this area. And he said, are you kidding me? You know, what you did today, most of us don't really know much about. So you you've done more than a lot of us. So you don't want to waste four years 
getting a PhD in uh, computational fluid dynamics. So I said, okay, well, then I have to really look for an area where I can use this uh, knowledge. And I was already working with another professor uh, from the same university in the weather department, atmospheric science department. So I went to him and I said, Kevin, I, uh, Kevin Knapp, uh, I'm interested in pursuing uh, a PhD uh, program within the department. And I was already working with him part-time uh, until uh, when I was in mechanical engineering. So he said, yeah, we would love to have you. You're a good student and I, I really enjoy that. So that's how I got into weather, not knowing much about what the weather was going to be like, what my life's work was going to be like, but I knew my background in computational fluid dynamics was going to help Joel. So mm -hmm. that was really the thought process when I went into the program. And then of course, uh, after my PhD in 1997, I joined Los Alamos National Lab in New Mexico, kind of fell in love with the mountains there, not the research program. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, that's the beautiful research there. program was uh, kind of like a, a side item, but I uh, ended up really uh, doing well there for a, a number of years before I started my company. Uh, my first company, I, I should say, on weather. And that, that was weather at the time, still no climate. Mind you, in uh, early 2000s, mm -hmm. I was still a weather researcher. And I like to tell you about the difference between the two. So you know how I kind of evolved from weather-focused research to climate too. So the, the, the real difference between the two, Joel, is weather is usually in the one to 10, maybe one to 15, 20 day range in okay. forecasting. Mm -hmm. But if you do anything longer than that, that becomes a climate issue. So oh. if you're talking about a variability over a long period of time, years at times or 10 years or even 20, 30, even 100 years, what is the variability and what's causing it? That would be part of climate science and weather is more like day-to-day -day up to 20, 25 days, even sometimes 30 days, but you will kind of go from weather to climate after those time scales. That's a really good explanation because I, I never really would have thought of that. So the, the weather report we get every day is a sh more of a short-term forecast. It's a very, it's a different science and climate science is looking at the, the years of climate, the years of what happens. Right. Yeah. So because I was focusing on weather for my science, particularly for my, my PhD work involved in severe weather, like multi-cell thunderstorms, supercells that uh, spawn tornadoes. And I was actually chasing tornadoes, by the way, when I was in Alabama. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> well, I want to hear about that too. <laughs> yeah, which I, my wife tells me when you, when we met, you never told me about that. And I was like, <laughs> what would have happened if I told you? And she's like, oh, you know what the answer would be. <laughs> so, uh, but, but then, you know, focused on the short term weather forecasting uh, and assessing uh, for my research and also at the company, I was looking at wind project development and forecasting early on. And then I uh, developed uh, interest in solar uh, assessment forecasting also using the same technology. But the breadth of that grew over the, the last 15, 20 years. And I said, well, the climate folks are not doing any better too. So what could I do about with my technology to help that science also? So that's really how my interest in climate science grew. Oh, that's really interesting. So you actually saw a gap in in the science, really. You saw that it wasn't um, people were missing something, and that it's actually a gaping uh, hole. It's uh, a gaping hole, okay, Joel. Because without that, I wouldn't have put my colleagues uh, in 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 such situation. But because the gap is so large, we're talking about ninety percent data gap. Oh wow versus uh, having only 10% of the information. If it was only 10, uh, you know, 2%, 3% difference for my method, I would have said, nah, don't worry about it. But no, it's actually a pretty large gap. And again, I was able to do that because of my computational fluid dynamics background, 
before I went into we uh, the weather science. And that allowed me to, to understand what was missing and how much the data gap is. And in climate science, for example, Joel, it's actually even larger that gap is. And because of that, I would not be able to sit on the sidelines and say, let the politicians and my scientist colleagues do whatever. I just could not do that because of that large data gap. That's really interesting. Um, and when when did you discover the gap? When did you figure out that this, uh, this you know, the, the science that everyone's using isn't really working? Did it, was that? It, it, it's another great uh, question, and it's going to lead to some of my key elements of my story, uh, Joel. So when I was a researcher at Los Alamos National Lab, I had a comfy job. I didn't really have to answer to anyone, uh -huh. you know, uh, but when I started my company and I was trying to give them products, I wanted to make sure, Joel, my products were the best that I could give them. Mm -hmm. Remember that my desire to give them the best as a vendor, not as someone who wants to make money and give them whatever I can. That's really not how I approach business. So my desire to give them the best product really drove me to this method. And well, I, that's always my uh, my theory has always been if 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 capital if all capitalists thought that way, we would have a much different society than we do now. I uh, I, I, I hope so. You too. You, you're right, and I <laughs> want to change that a little bit because I came up yeah. with these nine fundamentals. So to answer your question, after I started my company in two thousand and two. I was still trying to work my products and try to get some clients on board. I think it didn't happen until maybe 2005 timeframe mm -hmm. when I had the idea and also had the stalker method as it's now known as. At that time, I didn't know what it would be called or what it would be like, but I knew a method was in the making. And then of course, uh, Joel, that had to be implemented into a model a method is a method, but you really have to have a working algorithm fully baked into a model and validated. That took me a long time, multiple years actually down the road. And yeah, and that's got to be uh, hard also to be, you know, creating your own model when there's already one that everyone's using. Um, it, that's got to be a, a a big challenge and what so can you tell me a little bit about it um like the difference that uh, your method compared to what it what everyone else is using right now so uh, that's another great question and i think you did your research so uh, uh so he, here is what it is joel back in the day when uh, the science was in its infancy maybe 50 years you know, after Second World War, we had more observations coming out and people were, were creating conceptual models and things like that. But there was no computational resource available at the time. Mm -hmm. Computational resource came about later on, much like in the uh, late 80s to early 90s, just about the time when I was in graduate school, just happened to be the right time. But before then, a lot of the science uh, works were essentially based on observations. So when I say observations, I want to make a distinction. When you're measuring wind speed or temperature or relative humidity, these are measured by all the sensors. And then what do you do where you have no measurements at another location? So you end up using your measurements at the location you have them and then extrapolate or interpolate to a location where you have no measurements. That has been the science and I actually call it state variable science because it's relying on observations of the state variables like wind speed, temperature, relative humidity and so forth. But what's deficient in, in that method or approach, uh, Joel, is these state variables are changing all the time. If you measure wind speed, for example, and you look at a time series, it's going up and down, up and down all the time. Mm -hmm. Why is mm -hmm. that? There are lots of reasons. 
And those reasons are what I call physical processes related to clouds, related to solar radiation, related to transport and mixing. All those things are causing your wind speed to change, go up and down. But those physical processes are not measured, not measured. And they're not modeled also accurately by the models that are being employed. So my method is about enabling those underlying physical processes instead of just interpolating or extrapolating. So that's really the best way I would describe without using a lot of jargon. And that's pretty shocking. That, uh, that, that's pretty surprising. I, I've studied weather a little bit because I, I got my pilot's license years ago. So, uh, you know, you have to do, you have to study at least what, cl what clouds are and why it's windy in the morning and or less windy in the morning and things like this. So I never even considered the fact that that uh, there wasn't, I don't know, I guess a model for why all this is happening. I always just assume there was. So that that's really pretty shocking that that there wasn't that that didn't exist before. Don't don't feel bad, Joel. I actually <laughs> got a PhD uh, without realizing it. Uh -huh. I actually okay. published a lot of papers myself without realizing it. Uh huh because of the science, the way it's, it's practiced now for the last, uh, you know, five, six decades. So there's nothing wrong with it, just how the science was practiced. And because there was no computational resource available, which is required by my method. My method is costly because it requires a lot of computing, but because it wasn't there, they were relying on small amounts of observations and developing some conceptual models, which included me also. But after the fact that the computing was available, I was kind of doing really well in that area. And then my desire to create the best products I could for my clients, really, I cannot emphasize how important that was. If I were just a researcher without a client, Mm -hmm. In mind, I probably wouldn't have arrived at where I arrived at. That's well, that's a guess, but that's really a good guess. Right, right, and that's a very that's an interesting. One of my questions was going to be why uh, um, why for profit rather than nonprofit? Because most a lot of organizations doing what you do are seem to be in the nonprofit world. But that kind of answered that question. Uh, it, it was actually a um, you know. Um, a customer service and profit motivator that that I don't know uh, steered you towards the idea of making a better product and that there's something missing. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. Well, I, I will, you you are right about that. I will throw just one more point at it uh, as mm -hmm. far as nonprofit versus uh, for profit. In my view, uh, for profit really kind of lives within its means and saves True. some money. True. Uh, unlike the nonprofit, which will spend the whole amount they get. So that's the only difference I, I see as far as for-profit or nonprofit. Of course, there's another caveat, and that is a lot of the folks on the for-profit side, side, unlike me, they're only chasing profits. They're not interested in really creating the best products uh, for the client. So I'm not going to generalize it, but that's usually the case where their interest is really about making profits and increasing that profit margin than actually helping the client, which is what the nonprofits do to do better. So I do agree the dichotomy between the two, but when I'm in the, in the desire of creating the best products for my clients, mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit organization. And the organizations that you that um, are interested in your products are they uh, big business, small business, government? Um, like what? What different? What kind of different people do you work with? You know, Joel, being in the renewable energy early on, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a wind uh, actually wind project developers was I what I focused on. These are small, small to medium sized organizations. So I was really not looking at the retail end or the largest, uh, you know, customers like uh, big businesses or even governments and uh, that type of thing. At that time, that was my focus, really to help some developers who are relying on small amount of information to design a project, for example. I used to tell them how 
nutty that was to use such small amount of information and throw in hundreds of millions of dollars into a project. I said, this is really not the way to do it. So what is the alternative? So I used to tell them about that. But as far as now, uh, Joel, because of the expansion of the vision, I'm really focusing on governments, uh, you know, state governments in our country or country governments across the globe where they need to have a product like this to understand their resources better and then optimize those resources. That's really kind of like one of the main buckets of benef benefits for my product. But then of course, the second bucket is really just as important. That is uh, minimizing your losses too. Losses from your droughts, losses from your flooding, lightning, wildfires, smoke, and all of that. So how do you mitigate? That's also part of the second bucket in what I call loss mitigation efforts. And the third bucket for my product and my technology expertise, Joel, is how to quantify your carbon footprint, like your, your state's footprint or your country's foot, footprint. And if you're taking any measures, like uh, taking carbon out of it or not use fossil fuel energy and any type of measure that you're taking, you still have to make sure that effort is going to actually produce the result that you're at looking for. So if you are unable to quantify it, then whatever you're doing is really not going to give you any type of understanding. And that's what this technology is about. Yeah, and that's really interesting because we're, um, we're going full steam, for instance, to electric vehicles. I think we're going to really change over in the next 20 years where you're not going to see many gas vehicles. That's going to be a classic car. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't know how much science is really behind um, the difference that's going to make. I mean, what what is your, from what you've seen, what kind of difference would, would that change make going from getting off fossil fuels in the vehicle market? Yeah, vehicles still have to use energy, right, Joe? Right. So you have battery, but what's charging the battery? So if you don't pay attention to that, if the fossil fuel energy is charging your battery, just because you're using it as an electric vehicle, of course, it's going to kind of minimize your carbon, you know, uh, the pollutants that you're gonna put from uh, burning oil and gas. But what is the source of energy for your battery? That's the important thing that one has to understand. So long as that's there, then the benefit is going to be there. But unfortunately, that's really not the case because uh, the battery surcharge from, from your uh, grid right. outlet, which is using right. the conventional energy. So it's really another form of energy using the same uh, carbon. Uh, using the same carbon. And what some people don't understand is that the grid is nationwide uh, everywhere but Texas. And it's uh, it's so, yeah, I mean, because in Oregon, we're moving towards green power and have used green power for something like 50 years, although some of that green power coming from dams is still damaging, you know, to a lot of things. But it's not as polluting to the air. It still damages rivers. Um, and now we're trying to move towards wind power and other other types of power. But. It's uh, something like 10 to 20% of the power because we still get a massive amount of power from the nationwide grid. And like you say, that could be coal plants, that, that can be energy plants, plants using um, oil, all kinds of things. So uh, that's, that's kind of what I was getting at is, yeah, just, and also what's, a, what's the cost uh, manufacturing all these batteries and then disposing of all these batteries. And I should say this, a caveat to this is um, I love electric and I'm, I'm planning on getting an electric car next, but I'm just trying to, you know, get someone's I, like opinion of this who's got, um, who knows the science, you know, better it, it, than it, I do. It's, it's only one side of the equation. Uh, yeah. So it, it is good to get. I'm not really dis discouraging anyone from getting it. But you also want to make sure the the source of energy to charge your battery is also clean, mm -hmm. uh, maybe from wind and solar hydro combination. Of course, hydro has some some issues uh, in terms of its ecological you know effect on 
certain species and things like that, which which are reasonable uh, concerns for for anyone. But we, you know, uh, Joel, we are part of the system as human beings, right? So we really have to do the trade off. But doing the trade off more more intelligently, I think, is the the better choice than saying, okay, coal is bad. That's good. And, you know, you just cannot do that. You really have to come up with a common sense way of understanding and elevating everything uh, simultaneously. But that really takes cutting edge technology, science and expertise, Joel. And that's one thing that I'm hoping to offer to the world through this uh, technology that I built. Uh, and that's amazing. I mean, that's what yeah, that's what we need is is better better technology, obviously, because I, I mean, I know that big government and in, in fact, small government often puts money places um, quickly and inefficiently. Uh, you know, they, they will awfully tr often try to do things without looking at a lot of research. So it's great I, that I, you're trying to, to change their what they have available. I, I, I agree. You know, politicians have short uh, time uh, windows. They yeah. have to do things in two years or four years. You know, if you're lucky, you get eight years. So that's usually not the case. So you have a time frame where you want to finish something, but you have to rely on the proper scientists. You know, again, I don't want to say anything negative about my scientist colleagues, but they have to embrace new techniques, methods that come out, you know, on a constant basis. So science 10 years ago, or five years ago, or even two years ago, is not the same. So that's something that uh, my colleagues have a problem too. Mm -hmm. and translating that to politicians sometimes gets lost. So the politicians run with whatever popular thing that's being talked about. And that's unfortunately not the way to go about it. So I'll tell you this uh, again, Joel, we could achieve same economic output without messing with the environment, provided we have the proper science to allow us to understand both. And if you're not understanding both, then you have to favor one over the other, and then there's always friction politically. Right, and then I've, um, I've actually believed this for at least 50 years. Um, you know, when I was younger, this climate change, or global warming, uh, was brought to my attention probably 50 years ago when I was in just out of high school, people started talking about the ice caps melting and, and the damage. I did, I really didn't think we were going to be a law around this long. I mean, at that time, uh, you know, we, there was some talk that we would all, that society wouldn't be around because of flooding and different things, um, which we're now seeing more and more of every year. I mean, we're seeing the signs of it, um, kind of brighter and brighter and brighter. Uh, but there have been scientists like yourself um, who've talked about the fact that, yes, we can have both. We can, we can have um, a society. We can have industry. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, and it can be green industry. There was a, an incredible book that I read about 20 years ago called Natural Capitalism. I um, uh, can't remember the, the authors, but um, they had a non... Have you ever heard of that book? No. It, it was basically about the differences um, that companies could make to have a... to put less impact on the environment. And in their book, every example they could find, the company made more money when they did this. Um, so and I totally it was interesting. Yeah. I never heard this, uh, read this book, uh, Joel, but I totally agree with the fact that we could do both. Mm -hmm. But here is the reason why people don't do it too, Joel, because of the hard work I put in. It's not an easy thing to do. Right, <laughs> right, it's not. Because if I worked for somebody else and I was only looking out for my own livelihood, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have been able to do what I have done. So I decided to kind of sacrifice my own, you know, personal uh, well-being to develop these things for the world. So that's really what it took. And if I didn't do that, uh, probably would we would be uh, looking at the same problem. But right now, what I'm facing, Joel, is the politicians are saying, well, 97% of the scientists 
say it's all settled. And Dr. Stalker says, no, it's not settled because there isn't enough data. So they go by the numbers. 97% say it's right, then it is right. So it's not. So I'm facing on the scientific front as well as the political front. But the bottom line is this, Joel, when you mobilize all these uh, resources, you know, funding and, uh, you know, political capital and things like that. But in the end, if you're not solving the problem, after spending all that money and all of that, the problem is still going to exist. What are you going to do? And I know it's going to be the case because the science is not there. The solutions are not going to perform as expected using the old science. That's really my message. And it is urgent. You know, I don't share the urgency of some folks like, okay, we're messing with the environment. We're going to be doomed and all of that. Mm -hmm. As a scientist, I can't say that too until I understand it fully. So that's really where this technology is going to help us quantify it better. So we could take some measures that are actually meaningfully influencing that climate that we want to take care of for not only for us, but for, for the future. So you, um, your method is, is not in agreement with other methods. Does that mean the, the, um, the changes in climate aren't as bad from when you do the, do the, uh, do the math, I guess, do the computations or they're not happening as fast or, um, they're, they're just not as drastic. So, so a great question again, Joel. So it's a central point for what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So I will describe it this way. You know, there are only three scenarios that can happen realistically uh, without knowing the science, without knowing the data or my method, three scenarios. It's warming, it's staying the same, or it's cooling. Those are okay. the three. Okay. But current sure. science and observations and models will not be able to quantify that, that global warming, that cooling, or it would not be able to identify neutral condition also. That's really the challenge that I see for the science. It's unable to give you the accurate deviation in, in, the, in the warmth area or in the cold uh, 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 side of it. So you will not be able to quantify either three of those scenarios. And that's really is the crux of the problem that I see. And that's what my technology is going to solve. Oh, okay. So I cannot say if somebody says two degrees or five degrees, right? I would say you are unable to quantify that. I'm not coming up with my own number until we do this globally, but until then you cannot quantify whether that's two degrees, five degrees Celsius, because we do not have the science to quantify it. Well, that's very interesting because you do see different numbers all the time. I mean, it seems like every year there's a new article from a different research that does have a different number. It, you know, it's five degrees warmer than 10 years ago. It's, it's two degrees warmer than, it's three degrees warmer. Um, so that's interesting. The other, I mean, the things that seem easier to quantify is, uh, how much ice is melting and disappearing, those kind of things. Those, those, those measurements. Are regional, regional phenomena, right? Okay, so, yeah. yeah. But then we're talking about global warming or cooling. So mm -hmm. you have to put all of that in the context of what's going on globally. Right. That's really the issue. I mean, we see polar bears suffering and uh, ice shields melting and breaking off. We see that visually, that's true. Mm -hmm. That's happening, but what, what is the effect of that on global warming or cooling? That's something that we cannot do. So that's why having a robust model that's done globally, including the ice melting and uh, deforestation and all of the things that we do, fossil fuel energy, all of their net effects have to be understood and quantified fully for us to be able to come up with that number that we are unable to do right now. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Um, that, that's, that's a tough one because that seems like then um, people are just going, people, what people are doing to uh, 
try and slow global warming or reverse it is not based on any sound science. Is that what you is that what you mean? It, it, it is at least archaic science. Okay, I, I wouldn't say not okay. sound, but it hasn't enough uh, data in it to be able to quantify it accurately. Mm -hmm. So that's really what I'm pointing out because if you if you agree that there is a data gap, you may not agree the data gap is such a large one, but even if you agree there is a data gap, what is that data gap going to do to your quantification? Whether you're saying that's two degrees or five degrees, that's a huge thing that you would not know until it is done. So I'm not in, in a camp of supporting the left or right on this. Right. It's not right. political to me. It's mostly about science. In fact, I'm going really against the science that has been archaic for a while, and we want to improve that science to help our policymakers. That isn't being done so far, and I'm hoping to be able to do that. Well, and that's, uh, yeah, there's, I think, a really unfortunate thing happening in politics now where it's all political. So, you know, one side says they want to help with this program. Another side says they don't. It doesn't exist. It's not real. Um, and it's all based on who they're trying to please on a, on a um, television screen. So, yeah, I, I don't know if they've been basing anything on science for, for a while. Um, but they definitely need help. I, yeah. I have uh, gotten uh, a little bit of the, that cold <laughs> shoulder uh, response uh, by mm -hmm. my colleagues. Uh, you know, whether they belong to the left or the right wing of the, the climate change. But I, I always said, you know, we have to look at this objectively uh, and then uh, improve it. Because the bottom line, Joey, uh, Joel, is this. If we're unable to find the answers in the end, you know, no matter how much you mobilize and uh, invest maybe billions and trillions of dollars, but the, the California is still burning uh, right. or Miami is still underwater, uh, rising a sea level uh, threat, what, what then, right? So right. we have to make sure the science is going to be able to perform. So that's really what my focus has been, and I'm hoping to bring that to the forefront. And that, yeah, that makes complete sense. If you don't have the science, um, you know, you're not you're not getting the you're not going to get it right. It's going to be very difficult to to move forward. So what one thing I would say, Joel, in that, let's say uh, Oregon decided to increase uh, their renewable energy by. 50 gigawatts in the mm -hmm. next five years, as, as an example, you know, hypothetical. So hoping that their carbon footprint is going to be minimized by 50%. I'm throwing another number, wild number there. But after five years spending 50 gigawatts investments, your carbon footprint hasn't changed. Then what, right? Right. So you are right. unable to understand the effect of your measures on the system itself because of the, the archaic science. Well, that yeah, that makes complete sense. So what we're doing is is um, if you don't have the right measurements, it it's hard to to make the right changes. Yeah, and that's because yeah. of the flaw that I found as a as a researcher, and then uh, built a method but implemented that into a model mm -hmm. that's capable of enabling these underlying physical processes, which uh, has taken a lot of my time. Right. And so you actually have a group of companies working on this though, is that right? Uh, yep. Right now I'm adding a few other companies, including my global uh, company called The Enterprise Universe. Mm -hmm. And if you have some questions, I could go into that. But the idea really is changing this, uh, this stigma about being a businessman. They're cutthroat, they're only for themselves. All they do is get money and nothing else. I want to change that. So because of that vision that I have, I have certain fundamentals that I want us to follow, but also as an example for others to follow too. So I have built a couple of other companies and I'm bringing a lot of senior people into 
into the enterprise universe. But Vesper is uh, definitely the simulation company. Oh, okay. That's that's the company that's doing the climate simulation. Climate stuff. Right. Uh huh. And what are the other what does the other companies do? What's some of the stuff they do? There, there Are is they... a, a renewable energy company, uh, Joel, that I also created. It, it, it just turned out 10 years later, after my first company, after doing the marketing and development in the renewable energy, I decided to, you know, uh, patent a, a concept where this renewable energy actually creates load right next to the generation than producing energy and putting into the grid and using or finding customers on the other end. So I have decided to bring the load to the generation then production to the end user. So that's the concept that's a technology company that I have. And the enterprise universe really is more of a global brand. It does not have its own technologies, but it's going to integrate all of these technology companies uh, and I'll be creating a kind of semi-autonomous companies within that bubble where mm -hmm. the weather company itself is going to have its own team. Right now I'm handling all of it, but hopefully in the near future, it would have its own management team and I'll be focusing on the enterprise universe. Uh, so the renewable energy company is still in the, in the development stages, uh, Joel, I don't have a product but I have a US, US uh, patent on it. Uh, I recently got it in 2018. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations. That's, Thank you. That I know that's hard. No, <laughs> I understand that's very difficult. Yes. It, it is not, and I would not attempt many of them really because of how lengthy a process it is. Some people mm -hmm. say it's not that difficult for certain companies because they have the resources and so forth. But you know, even if I have all the resources in the world, going forward, I might not spend a lot of time really trying to get patents based on my experience so far. That might not be the way to go, yeah. Though I think that guy, Thomas Edison, had a whole team working on different patents. Ex exactly. Yeah, I, and, I he, and he saved money by stealing ideas, so that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will, was... we will not go, go into that, but okay. yes, yeah, that does happen. In my case, Joel, my, my philosophy is this. If you're really a creator, you just should not worry about, you know, people copying you or taking something away from you. It really is about your attitude. What are you in it for? So I'm not really interested in stopping somebody from using. That's good. But if I'm be doing better, then they'll come to me, hopefully. So we could team up and do it. That's one of my... Uh, fundamentals, uh, Joel, where I don't see competitors the same way as others do. Competitors to me uh, are future partners. We just don't really understand each other well right now, because if our goal as a, as a business uh, a people, our goal is to make our end users' lives better, our customers' lives better, you are doing the same, I'm doing the same, that means we are on the same team. It's only when your goal is different than mine, then, then we are on, a, on the opposite team. So I think it's really misunderstanding in the competitive world where collaboration actually makes a lot more sense. You will make more money, I'll make more money, I'll we will have happy customers. But if we struggle and fight over with each other, then the customer is going to get screwed and we're not going to be happy in the end, really. So, you know, no matter how much money you make, if you haven't made the right impact, it's really come to not. So that's really what my philosophy is about. And that's what the enterprise universe is about too, uh, Joel. I want this organization to stand on its own as far as the principles, not just how much market cap it has, all that stuff, I don't think anybody really cares in the end. So I just want to make sure the enterprise universe is standing for business, mm -hmm. but business is really standing for the end users, the customers. Well, I love that philosophy. Um, you know, I wish everyone had it. <laughs> I, wish, thank, thank I, th you. I think the world would, you know, the 
the world of capitalism would work a lot better if everyone had that philosophy. I've, I've always thought the Ayn Rand books were mis have been misunderstood in that way, that that's what I got from them. It seems like other people got a different idea, but I always thought that, yeah, the, uh, you know, the idea of, of industry is to give back whatever, you know, to keep kind of keep things flowing and do good towards, uh, that's the idea. Even Ford, who was, uh, had some really terrible things going on. His idea was so to, to build a car using his, um, method was so that his employees could for afford his car. So, you know, in the, in, you know, down deep, that was the idea was to give back, make it more accessible. And it, um, that idea has, had really changed America at one time, but it seems to have gotten lost now. It, it is. And I, I agree with you uh, in terms of Ford, you know, what their desires were. Yeah. I don't know how we got off the rails. You know, uh, obviously, I, there are lots of reasons, mm -hmm. but if we're able to change that for the better, which is something that I want to do, too. It's not just about churning out products and services, but also making our fellow business uh, colleagues a better uh, organizations. Uh, so that's through my entrepreneurship fundamentals. And I have this leading concept for organizations also you know, which is another topic uh, we could talk perhaps uh, down the road. But, you know, there are lots of things that I'm trying to do, not just the technology itself, but also changing the private sector as we know it. Because I, I spent quite a bit of time, Joel, in the academic sector, as you pointed out. Right, right. I did get quite a few degrees, <laughs> not as a, uh, it wasn't planned. Uh, but it just so happened that I spent quite a bit of time, you know, with two masters and a PhD that's on top of my bachelor's uh, degree in mechanical engineering. So I know the academic world really well, but I wouldn't be able to fit in there because my focus is not just educating or researching, mm -hmm. but creating products. So it's really not the, the right place for that. And then government sector, obviously, I have uh, a few years under my belt too. So that's again, you know, you don't really have a well-defined customer when you're a lab scientist. You're right. kind of doing your research, publishing, and I'm not saying anything negative. They do a lot of great stuff, but mm -hmm. they don't really have a customer in mind. There is no customer. And that's why I like the private sector where you're accountable. To, to your customer. And if you really have the same desire like I do, you will do it, make a, your product as, as good as it can be. And that's really where this research came about, as I pointed out early on. Without that desire, Joel, I probably wouldn't have arrived at this uh, technology because of that desire. Yeah, that is a... I really just a great way of looking at things and ended up obviously being an advantage do you have so it sounds like you have an uphill uphill struggle to convince others that your research is uh is needed yeah, it, is needed it, it in, is uh, yeah. mostly because you know they're, they're not trying to understand it's kind of difficult for them because the science has been practiced for so long Mm -hmm. But also my message is getting better too. You know, I got a couple of publications, I made presentations and I email a lot of my colleagues. We exchange emails. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a, a short story. There was this one colleague of mine. We were exchanging emails for like 30 times, 40 times maybe. Uh -huh. And he says, well, James, I finally get it. Uh, and I'm like, great. Uh, and then a month later, he was going back to his old way of thinking about it. And I was like, what happened? I thought you said you got it, but you didn't. So it's kind of hard for that. So that, that's a struggle. But I think it's getting better because mm -hmm. the state variable science that I talk about, it really resonates with a lot of my colleagues because that's exactly what the current science has been doing and we cannot really address the climate change issue if we rely on that science in that form. And how can people find out more about all this? If, if people wanted to get deeper into it and, and you know, understand science and they wanted to, 
to uh, you know learn more about other than emailing you? How could <laughs> how could they find yeah, out more about this? So my my central website, uh, Joel, is really has all the links. Mm-hmm. So for the scientists, I would say go to my research gate link. That's that's a, a a depository of all of the papers that people publish. So I have my papers listed there. So if they go to my website, they will find a link to ResearchGate and that would allow them to peruse and uh, even, you know, get back to me with some questions that I will be able to, more than happy to answer. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, this is a, this has been great. I think I have taken enough of your time today. Um, I could go on. This is it, my head is full. <laughs> I got quite a bit of information. Um, I really, really appreciate you being on. Um, uh, it's it's um, it's just it's so refreshing to have someone that's uh, is positive about climate science and positive about business, actually, and positive about you know capitalization and things we can do that um you know the idea of helping helping your customer which helping other people i think is is fantastic and really really appreciate it thank you joel uh, i appreciate that i i wasn't like this uh right from the get-go i was from you know like i said i was a scientist a good mm-hmm. one perhaps uh but you know the evolution of me as a person going from analytical person to now people person, trying to understand people's needs and putting solutions together and really making them understand complex science into, you know, bite-sized messages. So that's really wasn't a forte I had. I had to develop it. And I'm not saying I'm really super good at it, but I'm trying to do the best I could. So that's really all of that together, coming together really is what what took a lot of time, but I'm glad I did it because it, like you said, I want to make sure that everyone likes private sector because that's where jobs are created. Right. You know, we right. cannot really uh, create a wedge between workers and those who create the jobs. Although those job creators are really on to for themselves without caring for the, the workers or any of the society or community, that's a problem too. So that's something that I want to change, but the underlying value private sector businesses bring to the table, they are the ones that are creating the jobs, maybe not doing a good job of sharing and also working with the communities, but that's something that I want to be able to do through my science and my uh, other uh, developments and so I appreciate this opportunity to talk with you it's a, it's a real pleasure it's really it's been great it's been great having you on the podcast and uh, probably you want to have you back if you know if, if we're able because there's obviously more more we could get into so I'll just uh, wrap this up by saying you've been listening to were you still talking this has been Joel Albrecht and I've been talking to Dr. James Stalker about not only climate change, but climate science and how there might be a completely different way of looking at it that not everyone is seeing. Um, Thanks for listening. Be sure and share with your friends. Go to uh, give it a review, I guess. I'm supposed to say that. That's what all the big podcast outlets want you to do. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening and uh, be back soon. Oh, and be good to each other and be good to yourself. (laughs) 